Hey guys, just a quick advisory. Some parts of this episode contain sensitive themes and explicit language. If you're listening with kids around, you might want to put on headphones or come back to this episode later. All right, let's get started. When I walk into the room, I mean, yes, absolutely, I identify as a gay man, and I work in the LGBTQ sector, um, but that's not all that I am. If that was all that I was, I'd be a pretty boring person. I think that's the case for most people. Um, and and as much as sometimes we wear those singular labels as protection and identity, it can do ourselves a disservice by saying, you know, that's not the only thing I am. I'm also these 28 other incredible things, and there's a deeper meaning to all of this. Identities, groups, labels. Sometimes they put us in boxes that we can't break away from. And in the world we live in, people might not be so willing to peel back the layers they see, to dig deep, to ask uncomfortable questions. We'd rather make proverbial choices and pick up another box, plastered with labels that make us say, there, this is more me. This is the story of Michael McKee, a partnership strategist at GLAD, a doting son, and a soldier for the unseen. This is Camille. And this is Maverick. And this is Sincerely Human, a show about humans you should know and their stories of doing good in the modern age. being raised as a young gay guy in the South. I was really lucky to be surrounded uh, when I was growing up with a supportive community. So my coming out was never an issue. Michael was raised with a mix of influences, biological and otherwise. He grew up in Atlanta, Georgia with three half sisters in a home that welcomed anyone who walked in. Lots of other kids that came in and out of the house. The rule in our house was always, if you spend a night there, your family. His chosen family. Like Gail, who was Michael's first dance teacher. She was a mentor to Michael and traveled all over the country to teach dance therapy. Then there was John, or Crazy Uncle Juanito, as Michael called him. He was a chaplain. He helped Michael's mother, who was a grant writer for struggling nonprofits. Um, they all sort of had their wheelhouse and they came together and really were just like this little band of superheroes that went around all over the place and kind of all over the country and sort of fixed it for these failing nonprofits. So those were my influences and those are the people that really surrounded me. So, you know, when I say like my family, I really mean those people that were there, um, that were my angels in the wings, so to speak. In this warm company of people, Michael was taken care of. He was adored and there was no denying it. And then as I grew older um, and headed into high school. I went to a high school for the performing arts uh, and all that. And I started stepping out into the Atlantic community where I wasn't as protected as I had been. Um, and it was a real shock um, because when you're raised around people who um, show empathy and show understanding to communities of all different types, and then all of a sudden you hit the adult world and you're faced with um, 
you're faced with a community that all of a sudden says, no, we don't like you. You don't belong here. Michael was going out with this boy when he was around 15 or 16. One night after rehearsals, they were driving around the neighborhood. They parked behind a grocery store. It was already past 8 o'clock in the evening, and the store was already closed. The two of them were hanging out and kissing inside the car, as some teenagers do. All of a sudden, there were two cop cars that pulled around out of nowhere in front of us, and three cop cars that pulled around out of nowhere behind us. The cops asked Michael and his boyfriend what they were doing in the car. Are you smoking? Are you doing drugs? The officers asked all sorts of questions, and they were pretty aggressive. And so I was like, I I don't understand. We're not doing anything. We're just sitting here. We're just talking like we weren't doing anything. Um, And so they pulled us out of the car, and, um, and then he took my ID, and he pushed me over the front of his hood and pulled my hands behind my back like he was gonna cuff me. And I started to panic and I said, I don't understand what's going on. We weren't doing anything wrong. Um, I swear to God, we weren't doing anything. And immediately he said to me, you have no right to talk about God, you fucking faggot. It was a moment of fear, a fear Michael was unfamiliar with, having grown up around people from all kinds of backgrounds, including officers in uniform who, on some days, would have coffee with his mom and her team in their own kitchen. Up until that incident at the back of the grocery store, he's never felt unsafe. And it's something where, you know, that level of dehumanization shows itself in so many different ways, especially in the last few years. Um, You know, and it's been happening since well before the civil rights movement, but talk to any person of color that lives up in my neighborhood in Harlem and they'll tell you the same story, um, except that it happens to them on a weekly basis. Even if at some point in his life, Michael was terrified and pushed to a corner, he didn't turn his emotions and his pain into rage. So for me, I'm aware of the amount of privilege that I am given um, that has nothing to do with me and that has nothing to do other than the fact that I came out as a white guy. And one of the things that my mother, who again has been a huge influence my entire life um, because she she's committed her life to helping other people, um, was uh, the more you have, the more you owe. You know, it's a simple phrase, but it really, it has stuck with me since my first memories of the more you have, the more you owe. And being a white guy in America and having spent most of my life uh, figuring out how to make a living doing what I love with all the privileges that I've received, for me, that means that I owe a lot, that I owe a lot to the communities that didn't get what I got. Um, And since then, I really have been working hard through some of the organizations that I've worked with, through some of the work that I've done over the last 20 years. Uh, have really um, tried to find uh, those communities that are at lines of difference and find moments of resolution, moments of understanding, um, so that that doesn't have to happen to another 15, 16-year-old kid again. One of those organizations in particular is Intersections International, a nonprofit that creates safe spaces for artistic expression and dialogue between dissimilar communities. 
And so what we did is we did a lot of work with um, the veteran, the civilian community, with the Muslim community uh, and Christian community, with the LGBTQ and Christian community, which is really um, has been a fight. And we would literally get these people that are on uh, Democrats and Republicans, which now is even more important than ever. Um, and we would literally get all these people at a table and sit them down and make them talk to each other. And it was something where in order to get to know each other, in order to actually move towards uh, points of resolution, you have to peel back those identity layers and get to the person that's underneath all that. It's a tough battle to say the least, because these environments, they can be hostile at times. We have to know that if I'm going to walk into a room of people that have been beaten down by society and they see me coming and I say, I want to help, not everybody's going to look at me and give me a big hug and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much that you're here. Um, they're going to look at me and go, well, what do you know about it? Michael says that in doing this kind of work, he learned to increase his tolerance for discomfort. And you're going to leave and it's still not going to be comfortable. And that's okay because it's a process. And Michael did leave the nonprofit world, that is. For a while, he worked in an advertising agency in New York. He went from volunteering in local soup kitchens to working a corporate job in a posh building in Manhattan. I counted between the front door of our office and the gym about 14, 16 homeless people that were sitting out in the park. Um, very little shade because it was the middle of the day um, and it was a relatively safe space for them but it was hot as anything and these were people who didn't have any other place to go and were just sitting out baking in the sun without food you know there was i think there was a water fountain down the street that may or may not have worked but um you know and sort of going back to the office and looking around and looking at all of the thousands of dollars of catering trays and food and everything every day that just got trashed when five feet away there were 16 homeless people that needed a meal Michael told his team leader that he wanted to feed and hand out bottles of water to the homeless people he just saw. And I sent an email out to my team and I said, all right, guys, I'm, go I'm walking downstairs for the next two hours. I'm going to hand these lunches out to the people that are, are dying in the park in this heat right now because they need a little something. Does anybody want to come with me? And And people really showed up and I thought, oh, there's something here. There's a heart here. There's a heart inside this, you know, big capitalist corporate organization, the man and all that. I said, there's a heart here and it lies with the people who are sitting here. So through that process, I was able to build out a corporate social responsibility program for the agency. And people showed up. I mean, people from other departments that I'd never met before would come find me and say, what can I do to help? And that really wasn't the first time Michael voiced out his ideas on giving back. He came to me when he was in the sixth grade. That's Sherry, Michael's mom. And told me about a family that he had met up there where I worked. It was a, a young woman who was working as a receptionist. And she had four or five children. And Thanksgiving was coming, and she had made the remark that they weren't really going to do much for Thanksgiving. So he insisted that we give them our turkey and everything. We all marched over there. He took his little group of people and they went in and provided them with everything down to the mashed potatoes and we ate pizza <laughs> but uh, he's always been that way and it's just he's a good person a very good person finding a way to funnel resources to people who needed the most was michael's calling it was in his dna it's time to get inside of these companies that have been reaping the benefits of capital consumerism for um, decades and give something back. And what I've found, what I've really, really found in the last couple of years is that they want to give back. 
they want to give back. But the thing is, either A, nobody asks, or B, they don't know how. And so that's what we do, is we go in and we say, well, you know, you don't have to ask. Like, we got a million ways for you to help. Um, how do I take that heart and build a bridge between what nonprofits are doing, the resources that company and corporations have, and communities in need? And that's what I've been able to do here with my team at GLAD, is, is just that, is build those bridges. Today, Michael works as an Associate Director of Strategic Partnerships at GLAAD, an organization that works across entertainment, news, and digital media to accelerate acceptance for the LGBTQ community. By stepping into those corporate boardrooms and saying, this is a community that needs your help. This is how you can help them. This is how it's going to benefit them. And there's a spin. This is how this is going to benefit you. When it comes to bridging gaps and connecting groups with diverse interests and opinions, Michael is a force, and his body of work validates that. At GLAD, he's helped launch powerful campaigns and partnerships with brands like Harry's, The Razor Company, online retailer ASOS, and most recently, Kellogg's. In 2018, for GLAD's annual anti-bullying campaign called Spirit Day, GLAD teamed up with Kellogg's to create the All Together Serial. It was a special edition cereal that combined favorite Kellogg's breakfast cereals in one purple box. Kellogg's is another company that they put their money where their mouth is and they put their people where the work needs to happen. They don't just write me a check and call it a day, which that's okay. It's going to go to a good cause anyway. Um, But it's great when you as a company show up and when you as a company participate because those are the authentic moments um, that are going to benefit everybody. The reality is, many times, these doors you'll be knocking on might be shut tight. But you gotta keep asking until somebody does respond. I mean, that's the trick, right? You gotta keep going, because you're gonna get a lot of no's, and you're gonna get a lot of people that say, I don't understand, and you're gonna get a lot of people that say, oh, that really sounds nice, but I can't really help. That's okay, don't stop. Like, you can't stop, because there are gonna be people out there that will show up. If you want to learn more about how you can volunteer, donate, or get involved in any of GLAD's campaigns, please visit GLAD.org. That's G-L-A-A-D.org. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of 2019. If our podcast has resonated with you in any way, we'd love for you to rate us and leave us a review on iTunes. It's super quick and easy, and it helps us immensely. All right, that's it for now, but there are more stories coming soon. In the meantime, be good to one another. <laughs>